Wow. Isn't that great? That is just... I don't need to say much after that, do I? That's a, that's a whole sermon right there. It's a prayer. Breath of heaven. Um, hold me. <laughs> I've prayed that prayer before. Hold me up. Sometimes you pray a prayer like that when you're feeling kind of hopeless. And, uh, and you know, this sounds strange, I realize, because as, as, as I told you a moment ago, we're going through these little buzzwords of the holidays and talking about them a little bit. And when we talk about hope, you probably are thinking, why are you talking about hopelessness here in the middle of uh, the holidays? Well, I, don't, I imagine most all of us at one time or another, and some of us more than others, have experienced that feeling sometimes of hopelessness in the middle of a time like the holidays when we think everything is supposed to be hopeful and everything's supposed to be dandy and peachy and all that kind of stuff, you know? I'm sure most all of us have had some of those feelings because hope obviously means different things to different people. And, and part of that, and I, I, you know, we think about, well, yesterday was Christmas, and I could ask the question, what do you want for Christmas, or what, what did you get for Christmas and, and that you wanted, or, or, or could ask the question, what didn't you get that you thought you should have gotten? That's not right good English, as they say, but you understand the point. Um, I, I think back on that, and I, I remember a disappointment as a child one time, not really as a child, as a teenager, of really wanting a a stereo for Christmas, and I didn't get a stereo for Christmas. So I've cured that. I bought my own Christmas present this year. But um, you can do that. <laughs> you can do that when you get older. Just something you guys can look forward to. Um, but when we think of Christmas and hope, and and well, there's a there's a modern. Uh, I used a, I used a, a less than modern Christmas movie, Christmas Eve night, to illustrate something. And we're going to use uh, probably more of the uh, Christmas movie we think of of the of the new generation, so to speak, and it kind of illustrates hope or something we might hope for that we don't get or, in this case, doesn't happen. Just take a look and see what you think. He hoped, and it finally was fulfilled. Well, I wish, as do you probably, that all of our hopes could be summed up in such a simple way. I want to I show you some very brief but I think meaningful things and give you some quotes, and we're going to show you some things in the Bible about not just staying hopeful in hopeless situations, but just really what hope is and, and how that works in our life and, and exactly what God intended that to be and, and more importantly, how that relates to me. Uh, Monday morning, not Monday morning necessarily December the 27th, but Monday morning in January and February and you know June, July, August and September and so forth. First thing I want to show you, just a real, uh, this is just a great, great thought from a, a Czech dissident, dramatist, and a politician um, by the name of Havel. Look at this. Hope is a state of mind, not of the world. This is good. It's a state of mind, not of the world. Hope, in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy that things are going well or a willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously heading for success but rather an ability to work for something because it is good. That's hope. I'll just, just dwell on that a moment. Just think about that. That's some, that's some heavy stuff. Let me just add to that a little bit with a thought from uh, the great U.S. Uh, psychologist, German-born psychologist uh, Fromm, who said this, Eric Fromm, to hope means to be ready at every moment for that which is not yet born. Watch this. And yet, not become desperate if there is no birth in our lifetime. 
to hope for something that is not yet born and yet not become desperate if there is no um, birth in our lifetime. I, I, read, I read that the first person I thought of, and particularly in history, and being somewhat of a hist- history student that I that I I am and enjoy very much, was um, Wilberforce in England hoped for the abolition of slavery. For 54 years, he worked for the abolition of, for 54, get this, 54 years he worked for the abolition, abolition, total, you know, abolition of slavery, totally, not just in part, but totally, in, in, in the United Kingdom and England. 54 years. Three days after it finally happened, he died at a very ripe old age into his 80s. Okay, hoped for the, for the whole abolition of the slave trade, barely saw it come true in his lifetime. That's hope. So it's not just, oh, oh, I hope for this to happen, or I hope my stocks go up, or I hope this or that. I mean, yeah, it's that, but it's much more than that as well. I thought Fromm captured that very well for us. Tertullian, who, is the, uh, who was a Carthage church father in uh, around 200 A.D., put this way, I like this too. Hope is patience with the lamp lit. Isn't that cool? I just said, so illustrative, I think. Hope is patience with the lamp lit. So that gives you some idea where we're headed with this and some definition to this whole thing of hope. What I want to do now is I want to show you just kind of do a real quick information, what I call an information download type of thing. I want to show you three really simple truths about hope from the Bible and then just tell you a story of how maybe this will all tie, hopefully, at least it will tie all together here for us, all right? So a little information download. First thing is this, hope does not disappoint. That's the first thing I want you to see when we talk about hope. Hope does not disappoint. Let me just show you this in the Bible. Very simple, uh, Romans chapter 5. We also have joy with our troubles because we know that these troubles produce patience. And patience produces character. And character produces hope. Isn't that good? And this hope will never disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out His love to fill our hearts. He gave us His love through the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. So hope does not disappoint in that sense. You say, well, do I understand that totally? Because I've been disappointed before. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the big, big picture. And I'd add a bunch of more bigs to that. In the big, big picture, hope does not disappoint. When we are viewing things from the perspective that, that God would want us to view things from. So hope does not disappoint. That's the first thing. Second thing, hope is available to all. Let me show you this from the book of James, New Testament. Again, dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, Let it be an opportunity for joy. Some Bibles here read hope. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. If you need wisdom during this time, basically is what he's saying. If you need wisdom, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask Him. And He will gladly tell you. He will not resent resent your asking. All right? Um, he will not resent your asking. And the point there is that he's making is when you go through those things, there's nothing wrong with talking to God about where you are, what you're feeling, what's going on, saying, God, help me. Help me to understand this. Doesn't mean you're going to get an instant download of understanding from God. It's part of the whole pilgrimage, if you will. But hope is available to all for the asking. Again, be careful. 
with this whole immediate world we live in, we want immediate gratification, you know, real quick. And I like that as much as anybody, but that's not, that's not necessarily the case here or in any, in any situation. So hope does not disappoint. Hope is available to all. Third thing is, and a pretty basic point here, I think you know this, hope comes from God. Hope comes from God. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. Maybe you hadn't thought about this. Look what he says. Look what the author, St. Paul, says in Romans chapter 15. So I pray that God, who gives you hope, will keep you happy and full of peace as you believe in Him. May you overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope does not disappoint. It's available to all. It comes from God. That's hope. Okay. So I understand that, and that's some good information to know and so forth. How does all that work? Now I want to... That's, that's it. That's the message real quick, all right? You say, well, that's kind of quick. I'm, I'm liking this stuff, Rich. No, uh, hang on, because <laughs> I want to tell you a story, and uh, it'll, take a, it'll take the rest of our time. Okay, I want to tell you a story because I, I think this story illustrates exactly... It's very apropos in a lot of different ways, but it also illustrates this whole thing of hope. And even more than that, it illustrates this whole thing we've been talking about, what do you want for Christmas? It illustrates hope, it illustrates joy, it illustrates peace, it illustrates love. All of those presents, so to speak, that we've been sort of unwrapping during this whole series of what do you want for Christmas. So stick with me on this. Some of this may be familiar to some of you, may not be. I have run a, in my reading, I have seen this more than once, and maybe you have too, you much are much of a a reader of history and so forth. This particular story, true story, takes place in the 4th century in a land not, well, I guess it is far away. I said not too far away. I, it doesn't seem like it. I guess no place in the world seems like it's too far away anymore, does it? I've been there, so I guess I don't think of it as being that far away. It's in what we now know as Turkey, coastal Turkey, sort of where the Aegean and the Mediterranean sort of come together there. Or, it's a mixture there, not quite, you know, it's kind of an ambiguous line there between those two oceans, if you've ever been there or studied a map on that. This is a story of a young man, his teenage, teenager, apropos here, teenage young man, um, raised by Christian parents at that time. Um, we're talking um, 280, 290, 300 A.D. He really loved hearing stories that his mother and father used to tell him about Jesus. Now his mother used to tell him, he particularly liked those stories about his mother telling him the stories of how Jesus healed the sick and, and provided for the needy and how, he would, uh, how Jesus would perform miracles. And this young man found himself wishing in his mind as well as in his, with his words that Jesus was still on earth. He learned through that whole process through his parents and where they went to church, that that was the purpose, or at least one of the purposes of the church, was to carry out the mission of Jesus on earth. So as a result of that, he became very involved in the church. Tragically, in his late teen years, both of his, and this wasn't that unusual at that time, as you can imagine, but both of his parents died. Um, and worse, from my perspective... Well, not worse. I, I shouldn't be trite with this. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a terrible tragedy. His parents died. But then on top of that, the local bishop, which was the local pastor, 
he also died. Okay, so I started to say worse, but I, you know, obviously it's kind of a selfish statement there, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you understand my point with all that. His parents died, seriously, his parents died. Tragic thing, although again, not unusual at that time. But then the local bishop slash pastor died of his church, and he was very interested in all these things. They had what we would call a, they didn't call it this, but we would have a search committee. They had a search committee type thing, and, and one of the guys of the local um, pastoral search team, I think the, there's another term for it here, oh, church council, oh well, anyway, um, in some strange, almost, you know, apocalyptic manner, in some sort of a dream or something, believed that God was, was raising up this young man to be the bishop of that area, and the bishop was basically synonymous as being, as being a pastor of that particular community, and there was only one church per community, unlike what we would have today. So, but during those teen years, this, this young man is seeking, he's seeing, and I, probably not unlike a lot of teens, he was just seeking, what does God want with my life? What, is, what does God want me to do with my life? And so this team comes and says, you know, we think you're the right guy to eventually be the bishop here. We want you to start, we want you, if you're willing, to start studying so that you can become the pastor slash the, the bishop of this area. And he loved that idea. He was humbled, but he loved that idea. And he did. So he accepted that and eventually became the bishop of that area around 300 A.D., by this time out of his teens, of course. Became a staunch defender of the Bible. Uh, at that particular time, there was a thing called the Arian heresy that was going around. The Arian heresy, was they were a bunch of people who, who basically denied the deity of Christ. It was a very, um, obviously, you can imagine, of the friction and of the division that took place at that particular time. And uh, our, our subject, our young man, became such a staunch defender of of the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, that eventually he ended up being put in jail by a very evil Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian. Um, he ended up being put in prison because of his staunch defense of the, of the deity of Christ. It wasn't until Constantine, the next emperor of Rome, who, by the way, that name may sound familiar if you've uh, read much history at all, because he, in 303 A.D., was the, uh, was the one that really legalized Christianity. Became, Christianity became legal by 303 A.D. under the Roman Emperor Constantine. It's interesting, and I'm not going to go into this too much. You, you, you can see a little bit of my passion for the history of all this. But some, some scholars believe, little side note here, some scholars believe that 303 A.D. is really when the church began, big C, began losing its purity. When, when, when Constantine made it legal, 400 about 404 A.D. is when what we now know as the Roman, the Holy Roman Church begins. About 100 years after this, the Holy Roman Church begins being formed. And it's not until, what, 1500, circa 1500, when we really start having the Reformation. So you can see things really start changing, start evolving, or in some cases de-evolving, even though that's not a word, um, for the church about that particular time. So anyway, um, Constantine comes to power. He gets this man out of jail. He goes back to what we now know is that one little area on the coastal of modern of the coast of modern day Turkey to become the, the bishop there again and, and becomes a great well known for that part of the world. That's that's pretty much the Western world at that time, uh, as well as Europe and so forth, as a great bishop and so forth. Um, he um, 
He personally felt responsible for meeting the needs of people in his parish. He dedicated his enormous wealth because he was, had been left quite an inheritance by his parents. He started dedicating his wealth to doing that. He often, get this, he often disguised himself and secretly visited homes of very needy people, and under the cloak of darkness he would deliver food, he would deliver clothing, and he would deliver money. You're beginning to track with me, aren't you? Okay. Hang on there. All right, hang on there. Don't get ahead of me. Um, the recipients had no idea where these blessings originated. Well, there's a story, that, a true story in all of this, that there was a, a very rich nobleman who lost everything he had. That was probably in the stock market crash of 303 A.D. And, um, but he, he lost everything he had. And he had three daughters. And at that particular time, they, um, they, you had to have a dowry for your daughter to get married. In other words, the, the father had to, had to pay the, the groom, as we would call it, you know, a large sum of money to get, the, get life started. We don't do that anymore. Of course, we have weddings now. And I would rather go back to dowries, frankly, <laughs> having been through that with, uh, with our daughter and so forth. I would rather, I, in fact, I did. I said, Ike, how much is it going to take? Just, you know, I'll give you, I'll write you a check right now. You guys get married and boom. And uh, he would have done it, by the way. He would have, he was all over that. And Stephanie, our daughter, said, I want a wedding. I've been dreaming for a wedding. So anyway, average wedding today. Average, you know how much, just, just a side note. You know how much the average wedding costs? Do you guys know? How much? You have any idea? Any guess? Girl, girls, do you know? $20,000. Average wedding. That's, now, that's not a short hills wedding. That's a cheap wedding, okay? Just for the record. But, um, and if you don't believe me, talk to my daughter. She's the assistant manager at Priscilla of Boston, and she can fix you up, okay? But anyway, um, they had dowries. This guy lost everything he had. He didn't have any money. Seriously. Of the three daughters, one of the daughters said, you know what? I will sell myself into slavery. True. I will sell myself into slavery, which basically meant prostitution in order to fund the, do- the, 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 the weddings, the dowries of my two sisters. Gosh, is that incredible or what? Our good bishop heard about this story. So when, the first, when he heard that the first daughter was going to get married, he mysteriously dropped off a bundle of money at this nobleman's house, enough for the dowry. She got married. Second one comes along, did the same thing. Mysteriously at nighttime, drops off a bundle of money. Third time, the nobleman says, I want to find out who's doing this. So he circles around his house a whole group, or a, whole, a whole long strand of, of string, and he put, put bells on them. You better be tracking with me now, okay? You better be tracking with me. He put, no, seriously, he put bells on them so that he knew that whenever the perpetrator, so to speak, would come to his property, he would trip along those strings and ring those bells. Ring them bells, ring them. Anyway, um... <laughs> Just trying to help you guys out here, okay? Uh, um, he did that. Obviously, it worked. He caught the bishop, bishop of, this, of this area. He caught him. He said, what are you doing? Have you, have you he, he found out the whole deal. And the bishop said, look, promise me one thing. You won't tell anybody. And, of course, the dad said, of course, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> The next day, he calls the National Enquirer or the New York Times or one of them, you know, whichever one, you know, 
Can't tell the difference. So he, he, he calls him. He calls him and, and um, sorry, sorry. Don't, 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 don't applaud that. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, the, the secret, the secret gets out. Okay. The secret is out. Uh, word spread quickly throughout that whole area that the bishop was responsible for hundreds of good deeds that had been performed over all those years. Um, soon the bishop began teaching in the church others about the blessings of secret giving. Using, of course, Matthew chapter 6, the first few verses that talk about let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing and how we should give anonymously and so forth. Not the only reason. One of the reasons that we try not to make a big spectacle out of giving here and have an offering box in the back and so forth. That's not the only reason we do that. But that certainly enters into it to some degree because, you know, it's just, it's just awkward when people start passing the plate and, oh, is you giving? Oh, you know, and, you know, all that. Anyway. He started teaching the blessings of giving and the blessings of being able to give anonymously, you know, as the Bible teaches that you should. Um, And pretty soon, recipients ask who provided giving. People start giving gifts. And recipients begin asking, well, who gave me this? Who gave me this? And pretty soon, this phrase became very popular in that part of Turkey, known as the area of Myra. People would say, well, St. Nicholas must have brought them. Because Nicholas was canonized as a saint about the 5th century. And that that whole area, the the whole area of Myra became just just sort of a hotbed of giving in the example of their beloved bishop slash pastor. Um, Eventually, Italian sailors who whose who ships frequently docked in that area of Myra, and you can imagine right there, just across the slash Mediterranean, the GNC is Italy, and then you go into that coastal area of Turkey right there, the Italian ships would come in there. And they begin taking that story of the Bishop of Myra back to their homeland. Before long, the practice of secret giving had spread throughout Western Europe. And whenever, whenever and wherever the story of Nicholas was told, a spark of generosity was ignited within the hearts of the listeners. Many began to give in secrets. Eventually, the customs of Nicholas uh, filtered into Germany. And there, the old saint's name, this was after the 5th century, the old saint's name was translated into German, which became St. Nicholas, uh, which is spelled L-A-U-S as opposed to uh, uh, O-L-A-S. St. Nicholas. And then, and then from Germany, the story of St. Nicholas was carried into Holland. In the Dutch language, his name became Sinterklaas. The Hollanders brought that tradition uh, of the ancient bishop, bishop to a new place that they discovered, which was called New Amsterdam. New Amsterdam. Where is it? What is it? Hey, I, yeah, I was asking them. Okay, anyway. Um, um, I was going to test you guys. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Okay. Well, you learned something. Come to church, you learn. Some of you knew something. Somebody fell asleep in history class. But anyway, um, they came to um, they came to modern day New York City, New Amsterdam, 1600s, bringing Sinterklaas and this tradition of Sinterklaas to New York City. Um, Saint Nick, of course, burst into the scene, 1600s, um, and of course, as that etymology of that term and that word, Sinterklaas became Santa Claus. That's a kind of maybe I heard some of that, maybe I didn't. 
I could stop at this point and say, now you know the rest of the story, but I'm not going to. Here's what I want you to see about all this. The message of hope, joy, love, peace. It's not secular versus religious. We don't separate this stuff. It's all wrapped up in a person who really started this name by the name of, who we now know as St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra, about 300 A.D., who was a devout follower of the person and the precepts of Jesus. And this whole deal, and it just really rubs me the wrong way. It really does. We talk about, well, are you selling, you know, Christmas has become so secular. No, it's not. Santa Claus, you know, yeah, we've done some weird stuff with all that, and that's great, and we can do all the legends and the myth that you want. I don't, I don't have an opinion about that. Whatever you're comfortable with in your home, I support fully. But here's what I want you to understand, right, for the most part. But here's what I want you to understand. I mean, don't lie to your kids, okay? That's all I ask. Don't lie to your kids. Um, but here's what I want you to understand about this whole thing, and that is this. This has its roots in the message and the gospel of Jesus, and when we, when we start separating that stuff, I mean, that's, we get in all kinds of weird perversions of truth. And here's the, here's the, the real takeout thing that I want you not to, not to forget. This is why every one of us, the message of Christmas, and you know, you hear this, 12 months a year, yada, yada, yada. The message of Christmas, though, means that each one of us, in whatever way we can, in however, whatever way God allows, whatever opportunities God presents to us, are to have that message of St. Nicholas, the message of hope in desperate situations, the message of peace, all those things we've been talking about, the message of joy, the message of love in how we live. Not just one day a year, not just for a week out of the year, but as you, as you approach this new year, think about that. Am I, a, am I a messenger? Am I an agent of that kind of hope to the people that I'm with every day. Because that's how I'm going to make a difference. One day at a time, with one person at a time. We start talking about making a difference and and being different. We start talking about all kinds of weird things. It happens in just the everyday grind of life, of being that person of hope, being that person doing what they can do, just like Nicholas did in 290 A.D., with what resources he had. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Jesus. And there's no secularization versus the religion. It, it's all, it all comes from, from God. All truth is God's truth, and I can embrace that. Does I mean I'm always happy with how things get changed or how things... No, I'm not always happy about that. That's not the issue here. The issue is where am I going to go to find that message of hope? And more importantly, who, this is where you and I come in, who is going to bring that message of hope to the world where I am? And there are many people in your world that some others of us will never have the opportunity of meeting, but you do. And you can be just like that young bishop was in almost 380. Let's pray. This is just such a good thing. Let's just pray together and Ask God to drive that into our hearts. Lord God, I'm so thankful that we can take the opportunity to 
see these things and reflect for just a moment here this morning, sort of, in the, sort of at the end of our, our Christmas holiday, but in the middle of this week of holidays that we have. Lord, I, I'm grateful that we can, we can those of us who, who understand history and understand society can just really be grateful for the fact that, hey, this, this whole Christmas thing is, is, is so Christ-centered, even Santa Claus, Santa Claus. St. Nicholas, this man that, that you used in some pretty powerful ways so many, many, many years ago. Lord, we just are grateful for that. Help us just to kind of enjoy that truth and knowing that. But Lord, most importantly, I pray for each one of us. And tomorrow or next week or maybe even today, we'll be going into our own little different, different little niches of the world. Help there to be, Lord, at least one person, wherever that is, who is that person of, of not just love and joy and, and grace, and, but of hope, of hope, as we seek to live and practice the precepts following the person of Jesus. And Lord, we're all here in different places of life. Some of us are just really well down that road of following you. Some of us are at the beginning of it. Some of us are still thinking about it. Wherever we are, God, I pray that we make that application to each of our hearts in, in, in the ways that, 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 that will work, in the ways that will make a difference. So we thank you, Lord, again, for this time. We, we just uh, thank you for the holidays. Pray for the remainder of them. Pray for safety for those, all of us who are here. And uh, we pray for your protection. And uh, we just pray, Lord, there'd be a, a great rest of the rest of the week as well. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.